Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA, get a quote today. Hello and welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast. I'm Richard Gallagher. And I'm Pete Smith. And on this week's show, we're joined by a very special guest. It's Bjorn from Razorlight. Yeah, really enjoyed this one. You know, hearing the inside story of one of the biggest bands of the noughties era. Uh, Bjorn is obviously on guitars for them and he shares some great stories about how he and Johnny Burrell and the rest of the band put together some of their huge songs. But they're also a fantastic live band. And here's Bjorn on the famous ad hoc sections in their live shows. Because live, we'd always have like little bits where we didn't know what we were doing. So kind of in the city and profile are two kind of classic, but, but, it, but it can happen at any point. If Johnny decided he needed to kind of like to put the music in a hold and pattern to do stuff, well, that, that's what happened. So quite a lot of the time and, and the interaction with the crowd, you can, you can kind of tell that they know that you don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> and then, because you know, we're just kind of jamming and then Andy will, you know, would start hitting like a little thing. I'd go with that on guitar, maybe Carl goes with it, and Johnny's got like, you know, he's, he's always got like kind of lyrics and melodies and stuff, so he'll throw that in and then, you know, just kind of go free on it. And then somebody will start playing like the little, the, you know, two notes from like the Dalston melody, which we're kind of currently jamming out in the middle. And then we'll go, you know, and, we, and I remember we had these cues where like, Johnny would kind of reach behind his back and do like hand signs. And then we noticed, like, okay, okay, because he, you know, he would go into like, what, what, and kind of building up the vocal. But is he gonna like pow into, you know, all of us? We're just gonna drop it down. You know, we just don't know. We're just watching him like hawks and sort of the crowd, and it's just amazing. And sometimes it just completely falls apart, and you know, Andy just has to go one, two, three, four, and, and then, you go, <laughs> and it's all right, it's all right, or something. But it is just special, you know. Yeah, as you say, Rich, that's such a fantastic live band. I remember having a DVD of uh, their live performances and you know, pretty much having that on loop constantly in my room at uni. Um, and we also chat about one of the Ali Paddy shows uh, that I saw them at. Yeah, yeah, brilliant life. Um, my main memories of actually seeing them outdoors. Uh, I've seen them at <laughs> countless festivals. Uh, talked about the Glastonbury show that I saw them at really early on. Mm. They headlined uh, Get Load in the Park a few years back. Uh, and I even saw them at Live 8. Oh, Johnny, yeah. very, very famous for that show as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that just shows, you know, just how huge their profile was at that time, wasn't it? They, you know, they, they, they were just playing enormous shows. We talk about headlining, Reading and Leeds, and this band were enormous. They were, definitely were. Um, they were also a band that the media were really interested in. They always seemed to be stories about them in the press. And again, it was good to hear from Bjorn on what it's like to be in one of Britain's biggest bands and, and also working with and performing with Johnny, who, of course, we've read so much about in the media. Uh, but Bjorn tells us what Johnny's really like. Yeah, he's certainly got some good stories as well. And uh, as he says himself, he likes to share the real details as well, which really bring them to life. Uh, so here it comes. I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, remember, of course, to share your memories of Razorlight with us on social media. And don't forget, we'll also have another episode with Bjorn, a bonus episode, bonus podcast going out on Wednesday, where he picks out his favourite album from the noughties. But for now, here's Bjorn with the Razorlight story. Mm. 
This week on the Boys in the Band podcast, we're delighted to be joined by Razor Light guitarist Bjorn Algren. How's it going, Bjorn? Let me do really that. Well, thanks, mate. No, no, no. <laughs> that was that was really good. That was really good. Few <laughs> few Brits have attempted my last name. That, that was that was that was really good. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Thank thanks you for, uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on and humouring me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on, Bjorn. It's very excited to have you on, on the show. Uh, both big fans of Razor Light, so really looking forward to chatting to you about the band and the band's story. Um, but we start hey, this podcast. Welcome. Nice to be on. Yeah, great. We start these podcasts with the sound check. Uh, three quick fire questions. And the first one is, whereabouts are you? I'm at home. Very COVID. <laughs> very uh, 2020. I'm... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> The year we try to press, yeah, like can a society press a giant red pause button? And it turns out if you've got a society run by competent people, you you kind of can. <laughs> it's all about when to push push the pause button for how, and like for how hard, like how hard and how long. But yeah, I'm just sitting in my uh, second bedroom, turned into studio, and I also sleep in here at the moment because uh, there's a kind of a uh, flatmate situation it was it was kind of a girlfriend situation and then uh, the living situation wasn't resolved before covid hit so now we're kind of but it's been nice to to have like a flatmate and it's working really well so and uh, and uh, she does have a um, recently acquired psychotherapy degree which i'm sure helps with kind of keeping it <laughs> yeah the talking about the little niggles before they explode because you know are you still London-based? Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, I've been in the same flat for Lord. Is it thirteen years now? Oh, wow. I've been here, uh, but I found like, um, yeah, Kenish Town. I just love it here. Perfect. And um, yeah, funnily enough, like Johnny is essentially from here, and just randomly <laughs> we ended up like living just down the road from each other. So that's that's nice. Yeah, back near the old haunts. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, watching them slowly disappear, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sadly, that is the, seems to be the, the feeling at the moment. But hopefully, there's some light at the end of the tunnel for some of those venues beyond. But who um, who are you listening to at the moment? Who's your the artist that you, you can recommend to us? Well, I can. Uh, uh, I did a, a quite a bit of kind of soundtracky stuff, like for myself, just to have kind of almost meditation music. But because it's me, it, it was a, to turn into more sounding like kind of like sun, but in a major key. I don't know if you heard sun. It's like this crazy, noisy, droney, two bass guitars and hoods thing. But because I'm such a sucker for indie pop, it's like it's in a major key. So <laughs> <laughs> interesting. So I, I was doing that. So I was listening to kind of like the Blade Runner soundtrack, Brian Eno, Apollo, Tangerine Dream, that kind of stuff. Yeah, cool. Um, and then to chill out, there's always Kirang Bin, which uh, has been mentioned by... Yeah, actually, that was uh, um, the whole Heat one mentioned that one. Yeah, Steve Bays picked them out, yeah. Steve, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because I bought... I, I went to uh, the ATP in, in Buxton, the pavement one, which was incredible. And I picked up like a random Thai surf record if you ever check out Thai surf, it's amazing. But Kruang Bin is like sounds a bit like that. But there's kind of like a Quest Love hip hop drummer thing, and this amazing bass player who also sings a bit. And she's ah, oh, 
yeah, it's it's like a funky with a flowy guitar that's reverb out, and it's kind of like Thai melody but surfy influenced. So it's different. Yeah, they're really really cool. So obviously into a eclectic range of music then, Bjorn. But can you pick out any good gigs you went to before we got locked down? Um, I'm so bad with going to gigs. Like my mates in Sweden just yell at me all the time. It's like there's so much incredible stuff happening. But I did see John Carpenter. I think the first music I got into was film music and specifically like uh, John Carpenter and kind of Blade Runner, um, especially Escape from New York. And to like to see it live was really cool. And the fact that he just, what is he like 75 or something? It's like the skeleton standing on stage. It's like he's got all these lights on him, but he's kind of so the kind of pale skin, he's translucent like with his kind of whiskey hair. And he just looks like kind of this evil Freddy character or something, and you know, all this amazing music's playing, like with a live band and this killer guitar player as well, with a really kind of gnarly edge of lava meltdown sound. It was brilliant. It was really good. Cool, cool. Bjorn, let's talk about Razorlight. Let's go back to the mm. start of the story. Um, how, first of all, how did you get into the group? How, I heard there was a advert in the enemy. Is this right? It was indeed. It's 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 kind of mundane in a way, but it, it, apparently it worked for Suede right here. So um, I'm basically from like a miniature version of the U.S. Midwest, like Ohio in Sweden. You know, it's kind of rural. There's some kind of medium industry type things. You know, dad works at Volvo, that kind of vibe. Um, so I just come to here. I was hanging out. I had my guitar with me, and then I saw. Uh, Santa Claus Live Sahara Hot Nights, yeah, 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 it's at the garage, and I think like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club or something like the first wave that I kind of came over. And I thought, well, I gotta get myself in a band, I've got a guitar, there's gotta be something going on. So, yeah, I bought the enemy, was so desperate, I asked, I answered an ad looking for a guitar playing female singer. <laughs> it's like, uh, I can't sing. I'm pretty good at guitar and I'm a bloke. It's like, okay, well, if I can't find anybody else, I'll call you. So I found, and it was, yeah, let's see. If we, so the ad was guitar play wanted. And I think the first thing is actually guitar play wanted no pentatonics, which is guitar speak for like blues licks. Kind of. uh, and it said, Lenny K, Velvet Underground Stooges. There was a number and I think James. So I thought, like, okay, well, like Lenny Kay was the guy that put together the first Nuggets collection, which all the 77 punks listened to. Okay, so that's cool. I love the underground. I absolutely just worship the Stooges. Okay, great. So I phoned the ad, and the first thing, like it went through to answering phone, and then the answer phone message said, hi, you got through to Roger. So immediately there's this, like, um, what's going on here? Okay. And it's quite evident that this isn't some sort of like musician person. The tone is much too measured and adult kind of thing, you know, to, to a 21 year old me, this is like, Oh God, I don't think this is the person who I'm, who I'm supposed to be playing with here. Um, and then we set up a meeting uh, in, uh, it's called the Red Lion, tiny place just off Oxen Square. So I went there and I met Roger, 
who turned out to be uh, Johnny's manager. And he had a friend, also called Roger with him, Roger Hellier. So they basically said, oh, uh, like, Johnny's about, <clears throat> he's going to be here in a bit. Um, so just sit down, join a pint kind of thing. We just talked about music and then Johnny turned up and we talked about, I think we talked about Velvet Underground and Queens of the Stone Edge. It was kind of like, you know, like two musicians, what kind of music are you into? Da, da, da. Like 10, 15 minutes. And then he said, okay, cool. Well, I've got some demos. So why don't you pop by my flat, bring a guitar and we'll, you know, we'll see what happens kind of thing. Yeah, I went to the flat, brought a guitar. He had rock and roll live and a four track tape thing. Anybody who was in a band in the 90s, early noughties will remember these. It's before the computers turned up everywhere. And then I played some, and I think I pretty much played what's on the album. And he liked it. So that was good. And then we went to sort of see Interpol at the bar. Like, God, this is so like... Camden 03. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> His flat was up in Holloway Nag's head as well. And yeah, I remember sitting at the bar because I'd been, you know, the bar flat is like home base for me and my mates. So yeah, we were sitting downstairs at the bar flat and people kept coming up to Johnny and talking about, oh, hey, how's it going? Obviously you. And they were like, yeah, I just thought like, who is this guy? <laughs> like he's obviously somebody, but I don't know. He's got good tunes, got a great voice. You, you know, this is awesome. So let's go. Um, and then we started playing together with basically his old rhythm section. I don't know if he managed to dig up any stuff from like the Johnny Burrell solo years, but he had this band and they had like uh, two kind of gospel girls and uh, yeah, a guitar player who played solely blues licks, hence why <laughs> <laughs> no pentatonics. Um, so yeah, it was basically that rhythm section, which was John Fortis and a drummer, which eludes me at the moment. But we did two gigs. And I believe the first one was at Cherry Jam, supporting Allman and Butler. Oh. Um, second one being at the Metro, supporting somebody? I forgot, but that was it. That, was, that kind of got the ball rolling and then those two gigs was with the old rhythm section and then we, we got a different rhythm section, which we did two gigs with. And then Benji, the bass player left. He went to Thailand, I think. And Carl joined. So that is like the, the start of it. That completes yeah. it, yeah. yeah. And then brings it up to September 2002. Yeah, we read that you uh, you supported the Von Bondies and around that time. Uh, the, yeah, that's Bengals. that's yeah. That was the first gig with the classic lineup. Okay. Well, well, it's it's tricky the classic lineup because normally classic lineup is the first solid lineup, but you, I, I would kind of argue that the classic lineup is with Andy. Mm. So that feels when it when, when we're all pulling in the same direction. Because mm -hmm. um, Chris and I, 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 yeah, I remember having a conversation on a night bus with Johnny about this. When we were talking about like, okay, well, th this is a bit weird. Like we've got these two like old guys. What are they like, 40 or something? <laughs> like we're now. And it was like, nah, let's, let's make like a band. And then um, he'd known Chris for Yonks like, from 
school even, I think. Um, and he said, like, well, I know this guy, he's a, you know, he's a good drummer, um, like solid guy, like a bit weird, but he's cool, like cool weird. Um, but his, his style is a bit different and it's a bit like, um, yeah, just a bit different style. And at the time I'm, and I kind of still am, that um, I always take up like a, you know, a, what do you call it, like contrarian or something. I like things that, which are a bit, you know, a bit, um, different um, yeah contrarian yeah exactly <laughs> it's, it's more interesting to me at the time so i thought like oh, oh well you know not not a straightforward drummer in a pretty much straightforward indie band that could be interesting um and it was but it was just like i remember having a conversation and you know like a dingy riddle so that's why i felt like it was it was it was kind of the final puzzle like the bit in the jigsaw when when andy joined and it was um yeah, it was super exciting. It was a real yeah. kind of like second, you know, like rocket kicking in, um, just kind of on a, on a pure like musical level. And he he was so sly with it as well, bless him. It was because he was like, he didn't want to get like too involved. And and he thought like, you know, I'm just a new guy joining a, a, this band who's already doing really well. This is great. You know, I'm just super happy sitting on the drum seat playing, you know, whatever, you know, we we decided it's right. And then, you know, gradually it, you know, cause he's so, he's so musical. I it couldn't help, but kind of seep out slowly. I mean, we like, we were, me and Carl had borrowed the computer to go on the internet, uh, to look at the news probably knowing us. Um, and it was, it was a little backstage office, tiny little hole, but for some reason there was like this, kind of full-sized xylophone in there, you know, like a big kind of piano thing, but with wood bits. So, so Andy comes in, oh, hey, guys, what are you doing? Oh, look, a xylophone. <laughs> we just looked, and I said, wait, what? Did you just, like, play a thing? And you well, we, we didn't have phones that could play things then. It's like, what the <laughs> hell? And it turns out that he, he was really good playing the xylophone, and he was brilliant at singing, and, 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 so, you know, and the you know we had a we had a, like a really good like piano player because so like uh, Johnny has a you know he's not a technical piano player but he's got a good kind of bass to it kind of like um, that kind of thing but Andy could do kind of like Elton Johnny fancy stuff so all of a sudden it was like the range with you know where we could go and to make it sound good was just it was just blown wide open. So we've just kind of been cancelled rise for a good, good few months, just like having a, a great time writing stuff. He was really quickly into the band because Chris left as soon as we'd finished the first album. Yeah. Which is, must be spring 04. So weirdly enough, Chris is in the band here for like a year and a half from first gig of, of original lineup to when he left, which is kind of mad. So Andy did all of the touring for album one mm -hmm. and then album two, and then, you know, he did, he did pretty much the hardest bit of the touring for the third album. So it's like for the vast majority of the, you know, classic or, you know, noughties era, it's, it's, it's Andy behind the, the seat. It is indeed.
Um, mm. what, what about those early shows, though, Bjorn? So, so when you first started playing live in that sort of almost original uh, lineup that was initially established, uh, was there an early buzz? How excited were you guys to be on stage together? Oh, we, God, we were so excited. I think I played Which Way's Out at twice the speed of that game. <laughs> it's like, because Roger had, this is what wonderfully like the, um, the early, early years of affordable digital. So there are like loads of video recordings of the super early gigs and, and, and audio and stuff. So yeah, I, I, I listened back to it. <laughs> Like years later, it was just like, oh my god! And I think I fell flat on my ass on stage. <laughs> Johnny went, Johnny went in, into the crowd with like a pint, trying to like rile people up, and then he like he, oh yeah, God, that was that gig, bloody gig as well. But like he came back on stage, and then he like he slipped or like there was a cable or something, and he fell on Jason's amp, which went like off behind the stage. But thankfully, like thing was, you know, it's not very high. But it was still like all of a sudden Johnny was kind of going behind the curtain. It's like, oh, oh my god, is he oh, is he is he okay? Like shit. And then he was like back on the stage, and there's like, you know, I mean, I just dropped in from rural Sweden not too long ago. Like this was brilliant. Holy smokes! This is... <laughs> Afterwards, I heard that like apparently Meg White had been there. You know, I mean, to me this was mad. We were talking about recording. We got from Gordon Raffaele who'd done the stroke. And my mates at home were like, what's going on? It's like he stepped into some sort of... Because, you know, we were into the strokes and the hives and all of that stuff before I moved here. So for them to hear all this stuff, and I was like, what the hell? But, you know, you, you just go with the vibe. You just go with the music. And it felt good and it worked. So you just go with it. Like, I mean, what were we here, like 21, 22? Like, you just, you just don't know any better. You don't know anything yeah, else. Yeah. You just keep going with it. So we've heard you sort of playing uh, along with some of the tracks that Johnny had already got when you... When you uh, answered that advert in the enemy um but mm. tell us a little bit then about how the album came together maybe the process of writing those songs and um and laying them down um it's pretty much we rehearsed like a lot <laughs> and i was the only one with a day job as well so um basically we do evenings after i quit work at uh, diesel in carnaby street so i take the bus up so it was normally, it was like, I don't know, eight to 12 or something. We do, I think it was like at least like four or five nights a week. We were like gunning it pretty hard. Um, but it, I just felt like, you know, every rehearsal there was, you know, he, Johnny kept writing new songs so they would be worked up in pairs. And it was essentially, yeah, it's kind of like seeing a songwriter with band kind of set up. Like I imagine, you know, Elvis Costello, The Attractions or... Um, uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker. So he would basically come in, okay, I've written a song, here it is on guitar and vocals. And then if he had any kind of, any kind of vague rhythm ideas or, you know, like quiet to hear, loud to hear or anything like that. And then we would just kind of run through it as best we could. And then you'd kind of get a feel for a part in my case. And then it's like, oh, yeah, this kind of works with the vocal. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, everybody is just going by feel, but you know, you change what you play until it feels you get that kind of yeah thing. Yeah, I was going to um, say. I mean, it's 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 great for 
you know, as a fan to imagine you guys just rehearsing and then Jolly walking in and going, hey, I've got this song, whatever it is, Rock and Roll Lies or whatever. And you start working it out and you start playing it in that rehearsal. And by the end of the evening, you've got, you know, the bones of what that song is going to be. So did you guys get sort of, um, do you ever have a feeling of, hey, that, that one's really good. And that one's really good. And actually, we're putting together a really cool album here. Yeah, that was pretty much all. And, I, and, I, and it was from the get-go. I remember the first song we ran through and this is like so basically like we're all rehearsed Carl is his new guy and he had to have like two cans of Holston or something to like ease his nerve bless him yeah Johnny showed him rip it up and oh no no he showed all of us rip it up clever move actually is yeah, a new song everybody's on a level with. so me and Chris are on the level with Carl but like we haven't we ain't heard it before uh, and I it was basically the riff and I remember thinking like God, there's a lot of nothing in that. <laughs> and then we played it, and then Carl had to play that awesome bass line, uh, which Johnny does, as he, he actually showed to Carl. So there's a like, funny kind of memory hole. So I was probably like working at a part, and then Johnny went like, oh, could you try like that with me? But anyways, like, we, we ran through it. It went pretty well. No, it was a real moment. I remember actually like we stopped, we finished. We all just kind of looked at each other and went, "Ooh, how, did, like, did you feel that? Did you, was, was there just a thing?" And we were all like, "Yeah, shit, there was a thing." Ooh, and, and yeah, it's so elusive, but it's like all of a sudden, it's it's not just the sounds that you're all making, or all of a sudden it melds into a separate sound that's kind of in the room and somehow this kind of, yeah, it's more than the sum of its parts. It's really weird. There's almost like this kind of cosmic vibration, weird hippie thing, but it, it's, yeah, it's just something just kind of locks in. I've, I've noticed this, it's really funny, you know, having been playing with Johnny again, just how much our just guitar sounds and styles are just, they just blend perfectly. And, you know, we ain't played a note together for 10 years. And instantly it was like that, like straight away. And we both picked up on it. It was like, shit, like, you know, we both thought that might happen, but that it happened so quickly was a bit, and, and so like straight in there, it was, that was a, yeah, a very pleasant surprise. <laughs> and and I, think, I think that's what it, we just, we just kind of locked in. And then, yeah, Johnny, Johnny brought new songs pretty much every rehearsal, like every week, there'd be new stuff. And, you know, just, I do remember just kind of sitting on this dingy little couch hearing him play Golden Touch for the first time with the original chorus. I think that might have been like the biggest contribution to the band I ever made, if I remember correctly. Because my memory is that like he played it, had a different chorus. And I said, dude, that is an amazing verse, but the chorus doesn't lift from it. And he was like, right, okay. And then he went back and he wrote the chorus. Um, and then it's like, yeah, there we go. I mean, it's, a, it's really interesting to hear you talk about uh, Riff It Up, Bjorn. I remember that being the song that, that got me in, interested in the band. Um, but I remember getting these promo copies of Rip It Up and Stumble and Fall and, and just, just falling in love with them straight away. And I, I heard you on XFM, John Kennedy was playing you a fair bit. And there was definitely this oh, yeah, Big up John. Like John, yeah. John is like very, uh, very instrumental here. Yeah, he did play a big, um, big role, didn't he? 
yeah yeah it was it was it was great to have like a, a champion of the scene who would like kind of pick stuff up and play it and have us crazy lot over i found i found some stuff like we were playing smoking in the radio studio i found some like the photo of something recently yeah that's me joining in college we've got a little plastic cup like with fag butts in <laughs> crazy i just yeah it's a bit a bit wild westy now looking back on it and then the 90s was even more what you know the further back you go the more wild west it becomes kind of yeah feels like a long time ago but there was definitely this this buzz building ahead of the album release and i remember seeing you guys play uh, glastonbury so it would have been just before the album came out june 2004 I think I, my memory was about midday on the Sunday or something like opening the other stage or something like that. And the album was coming out the next day. And I remember oh, really was looking forward. was that the early Glastonbury? Yeah. And I remember ah, really looking yes. forward to seeing you guys. And uh, I was dead set on making sure this is, wasn't one I was going to miss. And I was just blown away. It, it was a six song mm. set, you know, just six belters off the debut album. And then, as I said, the album oh, came really? out. Really? Well, you only got like 45 minutes or something. Yeah, it was really quick. And, <laughs> and the album came out the next day. And I remember picking it up on the way home, you know, to playing it in the car. And it was, uh, yeah, really oh, exciting awesome. album. And, um, but obviously for you guys, you would have been properly in full promo swing at that point. So what was yeah, that like? No, yeah, no, yeah, no, just, just in, the, in the high of the, eye of the hurricane. But see, like, this is when it becomes real. When, when somebody like goes to a festival and it's like, okay, I'm going to see this band, see what they're all about, and get blown away, and like you've got the CD on your way home, you know, <laughs> I can recognize this. You know, I, I can't, like, what I, what, I, what I went through was just like weird. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from, from, yeah, from, from our perspective, it's like, yeah, like we're just playing music and talking to people, whoever wants to talk to us or wherever kind of thing. And, I mean, you know, you're, you're aware that it's growing and from like from early gigs, it was like, ooh, girls like it too. <laughs> that can, that, that's good. That's really good. Um, so yeah, like, yeah, you, you, you notice it getting bigger and like the phone is just like calling and calling and calling. Um, but again, there is, there is this thing as well that you, that you, you don't know any better. Maybe it's, Maybe this is what it always is. I think I had a chat with the drummer in Elbow, lovely boat. Like later on, you know, when they had their huge, huge record, because they they had all set up like Elbow. You know, they they know they know how to do it. You know, they just got like a rehearsal space, taught themselves how to record. You know, released an ale, and then you know they were just like chugging along, and it was great. And they could just do music and just be awesome and be Elbow, and then people noticed all of a sudden but I remember he said it's like yeah yeah no you, you know we've got a record and I was like oh this is great you know like big up and he said it's like yeah yeah but it's like it's kind of hard because they they had like families and stuff at that point and he would say yeah but it's like you know like all the traveling and it's so like all the time you know this so it's a bit you know it's it is it is hard work at times and I was like um yeah, I, uh, I, is 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 that like I thought that was just the standard? That just that's just what everybody had who was who was who was doing who was doing who was doing well. Um, so um, yeah, it's it's very much a kind of eye eye the storm thing. Yeah. Um. So looking back all these years now, what 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 do you make of that debut album now? I like it. I, I particularly like the spunk on it. 
it's got really it's yeah it, it's it's yeah it fizzes which is great i we we, we tried um recording with different personnel in different places first and it's like we were getting there but this is like yeah it's nice and raw yeah which is good it does suffer, suffer slightly from like overdub itis but you know those are only like tiny little musician background things mm. i just think it's really ballsy by johnny to have that long kind of spoken tube track you know it's, it's like a recording of the london tube and he's he's talking about like a night bus thing over it and i mean that's the star track two <laughs> we yeah, haven't yeah. even done like three songs to get it and i i seem to recall he wanted it to be longer and i thought like ooh, that's <laughs> yeah let's do that <laughs> well once it's done it was like slightly tortured recording actually like it, it took us a while to to get it right Tell us about uh, somewhere else because obviously he wasn't on the original lineup of that album, but um, mm. got added to the reissue and was just a huge song for you guys um, afterwards. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it's it's a it's an interesting one. It's it's weirdly enough, it's the ballads, isn't it? It's somewhere else in America, and really because you know when we're not a very ballady band, you know those two are definitely the closest we got to Keen territory. <laughs> um, but those are the kind of outliers in that kind of direction, apart from Johnny's kind of more intimate stuff. Um, and a lot of it was, I mean, Johnny's just kept writing songs, you know, that's the, oh, oh yeah, yeah, budding, so, you know, if you were like in a band doing the songwriting bit, just don't stop writing songs. Songwriting is an ongoing thing, because it's so easy to like write one album and then, you know, it's recorded, everything's done, you go on tour, it's a bloody great laugh. And then the touring phone stopped ringing and all of a sudden you've got bloody a month to put together a new album. And if you haven't got anything at that point, it, it, it's going to be tricky. So a little, <laughs> a little hint from the inside. So yeah, there was always good stuff kicking about and we wanted, really wanted to do something with Andy. Um, and it was meant to be Keep the Right Profile originally. We went, we went to LA to record it. So that was originally the, the idea for like the, the single. It was kind of like trying to keep ourselves on the radio a little bit as well. Because at that point we'd been touring for like a long time. So we hadn't, you know, at that point you were kind of um, out of the public eye a bit. If you weren't on the radio, you know, it's, it's not like it's like it's like now. Yeah, it was. It's, it's, as soon as Johnny had somewhere else, it's like, no, 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 no. That's the single. That's that's yeah. the single. There. Okay, okay, so we got the B side. Then okay, great. Nice to go to LA. Um, <laughs> and there's some fun stuff. It was fun to do that kind of thing because you know it doesn't really have like drum drums. The bass doesn't come in until the very end. So it was fun to try a bit more kind of a, like a Phil Spector type thing. So I think we did like dueling acoustic guitars with me and Johnny kind of facing each other with a mic in between us. Uh, and we dragged out a big old flight case and the three of us just kind of stomped on it <laughs> for like the little, uh, I won't forget it section. Um, and then the intro is me kind of finger picking an auto harp. It's this weird kind of Dolly Parton type instrument. And I did like a long, it was like, oh, we need an intro. And I'm like, oh, I think I can get something out of this. Okay, well, we'll just go and have a pint for half an hour and we'll come back. And I, 
I did this longer thing, but like the last three notes are good. We're going to keep those. And then it was like, well, it's got our strings in it, you know, Trog's tapes. Um, so probably me had asked for a Mellotron, you know, kind of, I, I was into like Prog and Yes and, and like uh, early Genesis and all this stuff. So like the Mellotron for me, it was like, oh my God. And then Tangerine Dream, of course, and all, all like early crowd stuff. So I was like, we can get a Mellotron? You're kidding. I'm basically like the gear nerd of the band. I don't know if you can see it basically here. Full of, oh, a lot of kit, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's like I've got, I mean, Jesus, it's uh, <laughs> a room. I'm, I'm, I'm basically going yeah. to die, you know, if, if ever you, like, n nobody can find me. I'm like dead under a guitar in my flat. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, I don't have a cat, so, so it won't turn into a... Um, train spotting <laughs> then andy was obviously the best person to like write and arrange strings which kind of left him to it but then carl added the little melody in there um so yeah it was fun everybody's kind of trying out jumping onto different things and uh, and stuff like that so it was great and of course we, we you know we couldn't have done that song really without andy because that it, it takes that it yeah you need that kind of piano playing for that song like the kind of like the yeah grunge grungy kind of attack piano wouldn't have worked. You need a bit of just like you know the guitars are bringing that, so the piano has to come. Yeah. yeah. And having done uh, really well already, you know that reissue uh, did really well as well. And there was obviously loads of mainstream mm, radio course, yeah. player around that time, really propelled the band into the limelight. But lots of the media seemed to focus on on Johnny and some of his. Uh, sort of headline grabbing quotes so mm. what, did he, what, what did he and the rest of the band sort of make of that kind of portrayal in the media and and is that the real johnny what's he actually like uh, to be in a band with yeah no i i think people have kind of got the wrong idea it was a bit of a character you know mm -hmm. very very much in the in the spirit of the age where and and, and it's interesting looking back on it because it kind of the, there is a kind of thing where it's kind of correlated a bit to the rise of celebrity culture. And then that whole thing randomly involves, involves like us a lot because weirdly enough, we had this oxymoron of chart indie at the time, like Johnny making comments about Dylan and things like that. And that just sort of played into that, that media. Well, fun, funny enough, it turns out that is a Carl quote because oh, the, the, <laughs> the first Dylan album, it actually just covers because this is in the sixties where musicians got time to develop that weirdly disappeared in our generation. So, yeah, but I mean, of course, like you're in a band and you're, you know, to us, it was, it was a band and yeah, you know, Johnny was the main guy and he wrote the songs and you know that, but of course, you know, as a young, young guy, and especially if you got kind of, you know, it, it just feels like, Oh, if they're not writing about me, I'm not doing, anything that's interesting or it's, I'm, I'm crap. So you, you, you know, you do resent it a bit. Uh, although funny looking back on it, it's, it was actually bloody brilliant because I could do all the music stuff, but I can still like go to Tesco's for a pint and pint of milk and nobody would bother me much. Um, which is like the ideal kind of, you know, it, it was, it, it was definitely like a bit of a like wink, wink, nudge, nudge media character that Johnny definitely played up. You know, I mean, like, yeah, I don't like dicks. I don't want to be in a band with a dick. I like really not. Um, 
and no, no, he's he's not, he's not. And it's it's, it's funny now because like we just <laughs> uh, sometimes during rehearsal we just look at each other. There's like a little giggle, you know, like, like little blue schoolboys just going like, "Holy shit! Like we stole the Merc! Like we stole the Merc! <laughs> and nobody's noticed. Still, nobody's noticed." So yeah, it's great. It's great. Cool. Well, we'll take a quick break there, Bjorn, and in part two, we'll talk about albums two and three, um, why you were out of the band for a little while, why you came back, and what's next for Razorlight as well. Okay, what's the number one reason you should try Instacart? Shopping over 1.5 million unique products from over 1,000 retailers and get everything delivered right to your door in as fast as one hour, all in one app. So you can spend more time with the ones who matter most. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, it's Bjorn from Razorlight. You are listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast where we're joined by Bjorn Agron from Razorlight. Um, Bjorn, just before we get into part two, I was going to bring this up in part one, but I haven't. But look, look at it. I don't know if you can see this on my camera. Ticket stub from uh, the, your Ali Pali show in, well, it cool. says on the ticket, February um, Oh, you got a little stamp. Let's see, 23rd of March 05, is it? But, but yeah, there's, so there's a, a, like and a, a these date the, stamp um, on it, which is 23rd of March, because Johnny had a sore throat, I believe. Sort of, uh, yes, I was going to ask if these were the rejeweled <laughs> shows. They were. Um, one of the few in our career. Yeah, yeah, yes. I guess, I guess they're by hands of tail. <laughs> so, w- w- so, so, ticket start was in March '05. Yes. Yeah. So, so the gig was yeah the end of March two thousand and five. Oh, good lord! Those are the pictures, aren't they? Yes, they. Yes, they are. Those are the photos. I bought my first digital camera for this tour in. Let's see. The first photo is twenty third of January in Chicago. Snowy as hell. It looks dreif. Bet best, oh my god, the Scots have got it for a Swedish person that's from a kind of Drich places, but not a Scotland, obviously. But the word Drich, and it's exactly <laughs> what it's basically like when it's outside, it's cold and it's raining quite a lot, but you can't see the rain, it's this miserable and ugh, and it's essentially a word that's ugh, and it's I, what's the word I like? It's Drich. You know, it's like you just say it and you feel like the word. So, mm. why am I talking about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so start that was tour, I think was it January you were talking about. So that was the oh start yeah, of the tour yeah. why why we had to reschedule the Ali Pali gigs. So yeah, we're basically touring across America, and this is this is the first time first time we probably got our teeth into it and realize. It's this giant big hamburger, which is definitely, it's hard to eat and it's big and it takes a lot of time and it's weird because it's like, it's lots of different hamburgers, but it's one ham and ah, what? (laughs) So we're trying to make sense of this while having like, I think, I think they were like three back to back 20 hour bus journey, which our amazing driver just did 
in like one go. <laughs> and he had to have like half a bottle of tequila afterwards to kind of calm himself down to be able to sleep. <laughs> Brilliant guy. Um, and it, it, it was just like weird and like we're on the bus and it's all new and it's strange. And then we get to Denver and what nobody told us about Denver is that like it's, it's like way up in the goddamn mountains. It's high up, right? So what you really need to know is that alcohol is like twice as effective up there. <laughs> and at that point it's like, I, I mean... It, it, it's weird how it kind of, I'm kind of convinced that like lack of sleep is a big reason for like a lot of kind of bust ups and arguments and stuff. Because like you need sleep to, I can't believe I'm, I'm saying this because I'm the worst at sleeping and I can never go to bed and I'm just horrible at it. But it's like, you know, and especially when you're under constant like stress and you're tired and you're traveling all the time and it's like, you know, people just a little bit on edge. And I think like something happened even on stage when Johnny was like, I don't know, he felt so shit he walked off stage and I think he was just like, okay, I'm pulling the plug on this. And I, yeah, I just remember standing there and I came so close to smashing like my guitar, which is like the ultimate kind of recorded and toured a lot of the classic stuff on that one. And it was, again, it was just like weird. And then like the gig stopped, I kind of decided to personally apologize to everybody there. There was about 25 of them. Uh, and it was like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't know what's happened. And they were like, oh yeah, crazy, all right. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure they're like checking is okay, you know. But I, I guess at that point I was just like furious for him for like flaking. You know, like you're, you're a kid, so somebody like, something happens and and the, your first reaction is like, ah, oh, that guy's the bloody flake. Uh, it's like, I, rather than like, oh my God, is he, is he okay? Because, you know, like, that, that is not in him to do that. Like, he's, you know, on stage, he's like, you know, he, he's just a natural. So for him to feel that the natural thing is to walk off it, you know, if he were a bit more adult about it, it would be like, Oh, holy shit, man, are you okay? But then you you just kind of resent the, you know, the guy who, who just flaked on you. Um, and then, yeah, he's... And then we... Did we try another gig? I remember, like, we met up in California and it was like, shit, dude, like, are you okay? And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's the thing, but, you know, like, gig tomorrow or, or whatever. And I think we went to... Yeah, we had two left... Um, Phoenix and LA and we went to Phoenix and we did the gig and like yeah his voice just caved <laughs> so we had to like pull the L ray for a start and then the Ali Pali was like a week after that or something so it's like damn it and we we were furious probably joining more than anybody because he hates pulling a gig like he is you know we are not flakes um, none of us but he he went to the doctor and it was like no, you, you can do some serious damage here. I, th I think it's one of those. It's like, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was, I think we managed to catch it early at least. So it wasn't one of those, like, you've got to stay. So it was like a few weeks just to kind of chill out with it. So we just rescheduled and then went yeah. home and uh, there was an apology. Did you, did you see the apology video? <laughs> uh, me, me and Andy and Carl were like, shit guys, sorry. But, you know, like, you know, we owe you like a voice that's on there. 
and we spent we spent like loads of money because basically the thing without a palette is it sounds awful because it's not meant for gigs is this huge shoebox in glass ceiling isn't it like yeah, you know reflective yeah, yeah. as hell and we were like uh, 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 none of that like you know people are paying good money if that's probably me and carl pushing because we saw the ticket price and we were like what you know coming from like in the 90s in the ultra so you know the see the scene that made the cardigans turn down a bond scene you know this is how indie that whole what we came from was it was like oh my god they're paying like 22 pounds oh my god okay we have to like okay we have to make sure this is like this is bloody good so we rented these big sheets to kind of soundproof it a bit weirdly enough what i can remember from from the gig because you know once you're on stage it's it's weirdly similar looking you know um and it's the same kind of energy where you've you know it's communing like you're kind of sharing an energy thing so i guess that's one thing that is weird about touring as well like every day to the touring party like you know us and the crew it's very 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 similar because venues look kind of similar and if you're in you know europe or the us kind of architecture and stuff looks similar so for you it doesn't seem like you're moving at all it's, it's just like the the venues changing and like where the bus is parked and, you know, <laughs> entry code to the venue is different and the local you know local people are, you know quality of catering varies if you're having the you know the local um the local punk cauldron um so it's, it's strangely the same and then every night you encounter people who have been like looking forward to this for months so it's an, it's an interesting kind of thing there yeah and um i think just to to pick up on what followed then bjorn uh, obviously the, the mm. debut album was a massive success uh, but the follow-up took the band to a whole nother level. You know, number one single with America on on that uh, that second album, of course. So, what are your memories? I know of- it, it was insane because <laughs> we were like, "Holy smokes!" Like, because because the band is like, just as long as you get a decent recording budget, you rec- can record in a good stage studio with a producer who gets the band, and and you get like a bus and there are like amenities and this like, that's, that's all we need. You know, that's all we want. That's, that's fine. Like everything else is just like, Ooh. Um, so to be able, and, and, and that was the thing. It was like, there was no like, Oh, how, how are we going to sell more than there was just none of that. It was like, right. Okay. Got some new tunes. I mean, like in the morning we'd been working on for ages because that's the thing, you know, Johnny just writes songs. So as soon as he's got one that he thinks is good enough to show to the band, he'll show it to the band. We'll start working it. Um, so we just and uh, yeah, that's how the Dior thing happened. I don't know if that registered, but the, uh, in the morning, did its debut at a uh, Dior. This is like the Eddie Slimane kind of Pete Doherty inspired years. Um, so we did like a twenty-minute music thing for the catwalk. So we basically had bare bones of in the morning so we did it at like mayfair studios and we had like we had a clock on the wall they were basically like time cues like okay we want kind of like high energy for these many minutes and then drop it down and then our, and then a big kind of kind of thing on the end so we did it there and then 
<clears throat> yeah, we just kept working. So we had stuff we wanted to properly work on already. And we just, yeah, we just had like four weeks off. I went to California, rented a Mustang, <laughs> raced around in. That was fun. And then, yeah, we just got together and canceled Rise and started rehearsing the songs. And it was like, you know, finally we had kind of Stuart Copeland slash, um, it's the guy from Zeppelin, Bonzo, Bonzo Bonham. You know, we just had this like amazing drummer who was really musical and we just like, yeah, we just worked the songs to death mm-hmm. until we couldn't get them sounding any, any better. And then, yeah, then it was just find a producer. You know, there was no like, yeah, it was again, like the music just kind of took us kind yeah. of thing. And it was, just, yeah, it was like, nice. Like you didn't have to think. It was like, oh, is this good or is it not? I don't know. It was just like, you know, the feeling, the, the feeling was there. And then, and then that was it. Yeah, that, so, so, many, <laughs> so many bands struggle, don't they, with that second album, that follow-up. It's, it sounds like for you guys, you just carried on as you were and sort of followed a very similar formula and the songs were there. And so it just sort of flowed in a very similar fashion to the debut. Yeah, it, it was just like people in a room getting excited about music. And yeah, no, it, it, it was really cool because we didn't, you know, it, it felt totally fresh. It felt, and, and I mean, you know, the, there is the kind of setting thing as well. You know, like album one, we're basically taking turns to stand over the radiator because it's so cold. It was basically, we, we, re, we were rehearsing in the same place as this, these guys called Carnival of Souls. Singer, a lovely bloke called Gronk. Um, oh, and actually Gus as well, who eventually ended up in Razor Light. I thought that was brilliant. He's like... Uh, yeah, Johnny got Gus in Razor Light. So they, it was like, yeah, it was weird. They'd, they'd gotten like a grant from the Princess Trust. They said like Unit 13, Lammas Road, Leightonstone. I went back. There was like a Swedish carpentry couple living there now. Um, but yeah, we, we were in Unit 13 and it was bloody freezing and we could hear the rats in the walls one night. I remember it's like, shit, what is that? If that is a spider, I'm going to die. Um, in between the, it was like a Jewish butcher shop and something else yeah very random and then album two we know you know we're at nice like saga center cancel rise we've got this like big high ceiling room we've got like you know we've got nice gear now Johnny has like a valve vo- vox and not a transistor vox that he borrowed from somebody I, <laughs> you know yeah we have valve amps essentially <laughs> so you know the sounds great and you know and of course, the success of that second album leads on to you headlining Reading and Leeds, those huge festivals. Jesus, like my only memory for that gig is fear <laughs> before <laughs> and during. I just wanted to like hide under a, one of the trailers or something before because it was like, <gasps> oh my God. And like, you know, it, and like, you know, it's Reading and you know it's going to get reviewed and all the press so that, and the TV. And, you know, it, it's all down to that hour like literally hour, hour and a half or an hour we had. And it's so like, because by contrast, like when we played Leeds Festival the day after, that was one of our best gigs ever because the, the pressure was just completely off. And we had all these wonderful people and because, you know, because they're Northerners, they're a bit less inhibited. We go for it a <laughs> bit more. So it was just bloody brilliant. And it was like, I think it's, I remember like Johnny announcing that it was my birthday from stage. So that was like an extra little, little bonus, but it, it was just pure joy. Brilliant. Um, 
so after that, you know, huge success for album number two. Album number three, Slipway Fires, obviously didn't do as well. And I know Johnny's been quite critical of it um, in the press as well. So what are your views? I think it's an, uh, it feels like an album of two halves. Um, because at this point, uh, I, I think it's kind of like the tiredness is kind of setting in a bit. Well, it, it was that thing like, we had the time off and I went to like Malta for three days and Johnny went up to that uh, house on a little island and got like really, really back to basics. And I remember him saying like, you know, like if he, if he didn't chop wood, he was going to be cold in the mm-hmm. evening. So he was that really like, you have to do shit just to like stay alive. And I, and I've, I've done stuff like that after like, you know, not properly, properly, but a little bit. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a nice thing, but you know that's the kind of way he. But you know, and obviously having broken up with Kirsten as well, he was like, yeah, he was just in that kind of thing. And then of course the songs that came out of that um, were not your kind of Americas or Fall to Pieces or stuff like that. It was more, you know, Blood for Wild Blood and uh, Wire to Wire, of course, you know, things like that. And then meanwhile, we're there going like, yeah, well, like, we're, we're, we're Razor Light, right? We're going to make the Razor Light album. And then Johnny was like, yeah, you know, we do have to make a Razor Light album. And I've got some stuff for that and Andy has some stuff. So, but I, I think that was the thing. It was like, yeah, it feels like it's two halves because you know, you, you've got the kind of like the bangers on there and then there's, you know, definitely more kind of reflective stuff. And then weirdly enough, that turned into the German hit. <laughs> that was like one, one, you know, one of those wonderful things that we didn't, we never got to kind of do. Because on album one, we did, we didn't really go to Europe. It's really weird. It's very, but I, I guess like America is the holy grail, and when people are there willing to pay for you to go, you're like, oh my god, like you can't not essentially. Like our our pro promo, we, we should have realized early they were bashing our heads against a brick wall. And she just gone to Europe, <laughs> mm-hmm. which we did on album two, and then it went swimmingly. But uh, um, I guess recording was a bit different as well, which is also a symptom of. I mean, I, I mean, our our main thing I think was communication, uh, and specifically lack of it. Yeah, like we didn't really have any respite because, as you say, everything was constantly turning up, 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 up. And this is way before anybody spoke of mental health or there was any, you know, this is in a kind of pre-Avici world where, yeah, it's, it's just mental health wasn't really mentioned. It was like, oh, you, it was more like that Johnny Cash thing, you know, when they found him with like a bazillion uh, prescribed speed pills and his guitar thing. It's like, oh, sorry, man. His man, you know, I'm feeling a bit tired, you know, on the sixth gig of the day. Well, I've, got, I've got medicine for you, John. Here you go. Just do this one. <clears throat> so it, it was it was almost like booze was kind of applied to that and, and you know it ends up with kind of some kind of monster metallica kind of thing where it's like you, you're you're really trapped in it and like thankfully none of us got that far i mean even like the recording of the set because we're like we, we rehearsed the third album as we did with all the other ones just in a room playing songs doing kind of like simple little demos ourselves but it was basically like Johnny and Andy came in, did kind of late morning to kind of around six or something. 
them, they would basically have a finished song with like rhythm guitar, scratch vocal and drums. And then Carl would come in, he would do his bass and then he would go home, I would come in and then it was basically uh, Bjorn and Mike's playtime. And I, 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 I'm sorry, Mike, I, I think I might have crashed your relationship because he just moved down to London from Liverpool and he was like living with his girlfriend but he just spent all waking hours in the studio with us. So yeah, I think he just came home and she just moved out, bless him. That's <laughs> as so, he has gone on to produce one of my favorite records of the subsequent millennium, which is the first 1975 album. But with, you know, it wasn't any kind of, oh, that's the weird thing. Like I keep thinking like, maybe we should have argued more. Maybe we were all too passive aggressive. I, I certainly am. I'm like, oh, no, conflict. You know, a Swedish person, ah, conflict. That's why we're so good diplomats. You know, we, <laughs> we can't deal with personal conflicts. Like, no, no, but, but if you put those tanks there and you move those missiles to them, can we just like, stop arguing? Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was the kind of thing. So, I, yeah, at this point, people are kind of doing coping strategies, but, you know, like you, you're still living the dream, so you can't, like, you, could, you, you can't not, you know, and, and, and asking for like, yeah, I guess we should have just asked for like two months off or something to kind of kind of reignite the glow. You, you, you're too afraid, but you know, when you're on the magic carpet, you know, you have no idea how you got the magic carpet to fly. You know, you got a carpet and you sound and you did some mumbo jumbo and all of a sudden, fuck it, this one flies. But then you're like, can we, can we pull it over for a bit? Can we stop it for a bit? Mm can we get it flying again after? And you're like, ah, and you see at the same time, it's like, well, the Kings of Leon are like busting their asses doing three albums while everybody else is doing two. You know, that was the thing. Like they were just, ah, they just, and you know, damn near broke them as well. So, so that's the thing. It's like, you don't, you don't dare get off. Yeah. You just don't dare get off on, until it gets so bad. You're like, yeah, you really can't cope with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really, and then, you know, Andy was basically like the canary in the coal mine because he, he was the most homesick of us as well. I, th I think like the other three of us were kind of, you know, for me, it doesn't matter where I am as long as I can find like some trees and, you know, some kind of nature and just, you know, like literally ground myself yeah. in a way. And uh, But I think Andy was like, he, he needed home to do that. And that, that's why he was kind of the first to kind of fold. So he, he left in uh, 2009 and then it was 2011 when both you and Carl left the band. So how did you come to well, that? <laughs> that's a fun. Well, we, we should say as well that like Andy did um, a bit of touring for the album. And it was basically like the craziest thing we ever did. And it was basically, we went around the world in two and a half weeks. <laughs> and this is like January, like straight off Christmas break. And it was, because the nutty thing was like right after that, literally like three weeks after, we started off again going the other way, but with a different drummer. So the first one was going to Japan and then Australia and then LA and then Mexico City and then finishing in New York. And that night in New York is... It's just one of those kind of like cosmic intersections almost 
through no, you know, like I, I, I use kind of hippie terms, but I don't believe in fate or, you know, it's, it's like this weird cosmos thing and we just happen to be alive in it. But sometimes like serendipity is just amazing. So yeah, we've done that gig and it was, you know, I mean, traveling wise, it was, it was, just took, you, you know, because it's flying now and now it's in Japan, jet, jet lag is way worse going east than it is west. And then you're there like doing gigs, it's hot as hell. Oh my Lord, like steam room hot. And then you waste up to Australia and there's like some stuff there and you're like, right, okay, to do this and then yeah all the rest of it and then New York and then you can see I think we had like a few days off at home after you can see it and it's like oh I'm almost home and at that gig as well I was like ah oh, like these two exes were there right one that I've been holding the candle for for absolutely forever and then like we end up snogging and it's, you know girl trouble essentially but I, I'm like, yeah, the old flame has just kissed me on the lips. And I'm like, what the hell? And then I noticed this huge fight, like behind us, kind of out in the room, like, like we're standing at the bar. And I was like, oh my God, what is going on? It's like, geez, it's like a bar fight or something. There's a pillar in the way, I can't really see. And then I, on our way out, like, I walk past Andy and his wife, Roger and his mate, and Andy is kind of, beside himself for some reason and he's kind of like waving his arms and I'm like ah well I guess I'll hear about that tomorrow at this point it's just like oh well stuff happens I'm like call me if you need me um and then I stayed behind in New York and I got even more emotionally confused um and at this point it's like oh well you know there was like a little thing but this you know I ain't heard anything so, so everything's fine you know Tour nerves, or whatever, and then literally in the cab home from the airport, and I was just from Heathrow, and I'm just like, I just want to get home, uh, and I just want to figure out how like I've been in love with a fantasy woman for five years or something. Strange stuff, and then I get a text from Andy saying, "I'm so sorry, but like, I I need to like get out." <laughs> like, <laughs> Okay, okay, right. Yeah, I really want to get home now. I think I, I yeah, I hope there's some cheese and maybe <laughs> whiskey or something, and then we can like start to like rework what's going on here. We what did we have booked this time? I think there was definitely some stuff in stuff in Germany, which which Gary Gary Powell stepped in. God bless him. Which was cool. It was really cool. Though. I mean, like Gary is awesome. Anybody will tell you. It's like you know. You can't, yeah, you can't be in a slump when, when Gary's around. He's just like all around lovely man. Very, very lovely man. So yeah, then it was just like, well, we just got to find a new drummer, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and again, you just like, you just carry on because, you know, don't stop the magic carpet. Yeah, I, I guess that was the wonderful thing. I remember thinking at the time, it's like we, we, we did stop for the right reasons which was like we tried some new stuff and it wasn't <laughs> yeah that was like after that I, th I think we took some decent time off so i think we had six weeks off after that one um and i remember being in sweden and johnny was like 
all right, all right, all right, got some demos. So you have two songs to start on. And it was basically like, it was, it was kind of what I imagined the Grinder Man demo sounded like when, when the, the Bad Seeds guys got those. And funny enough, we, we actually tried a few tracks with Jim Sclavitas, who's um, a drummer in uh, one of the more long-lasting incarnations of the Bad Seeds. But it was, yeah, it was like really nasty, kind of bluesy, but still a bit kind of dancey. This is, you know, this is one of the demos was Dr. Bushiton, which we played live a bit, but was never, no, that was never released. So it was basically like we'd, yeah, we'd, we'd used up our passion for the sound we'd created a little bit. I think that was the thing. I remember like from, from the demo recordings, I'm at this point, I've discovered using like multiple delay pedals <laughs> and making this really big kind of crazy noisy sounds, kind of like Nick Zinner inspired. So it was, it was quite clear that our musical passions had now kind of moved, moved on a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. Like the, the music stopped working. It stopped kind of generating that ooh kind of thing. And then they were there were like nuggets of that, but it wasn't it wasn't at all the same kind of thing. So yeah, we took a break and then I started doing stuff with Lucy Rose, Johnny started doing stuff with Zazu, and all of a sudden we were like, No, I've I've actually found some stuff I'm really passionate about. So, um, yeah. And, and of course, like Johnny had to call it because he's, you know, he's the one that can call it really. So he was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just more into my new thing, you know? So, and, you know, I mean, me and Carl couldn't argue with that because, it, it, yeah, it just didn't feel right. Um, so we just kind of stopped. But then weirdly enough, it was like, I think that there might have been some label probably some label pressure going on there where they were like so these are all your songs right but you're not going to play them and you know it, it was basically like well why don't you just call this new band Razorlight I mean it's just a name right um, and I think at that point he'd he'd, he'd kind of wangled out tango jazz style enough to think that's like well yeah maybe maybe do an indie record maybe that could be cool so I, I know I know they worked on new stuff, but uh, I've I don't know, and nothing was released at the time, at least. But that was basically it. Like the label convinced them to call his new band Razorlight. So I mean, I guess you can see it as the most circumspect firing in in like rock history, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, it, it 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 felt good to kind of have a really kind of intense thing that then just kind of stopped. It felt very kind of 90s indie righteous, you know. Okay. There's not that kind of slow, slow thing you're supposed to get on or whatever. But it's, it's, it's kind of weird because now it's just a bit crazy that like when you've made three albums, that's it. You should just like dissolve the band and form a new one. I, think, God, I, I seem to remember the fifth Beatles album being pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, what brought you back then after all that time away? Uh, he called and he had a song <laughs> and the song was really good. And that was it. 
<laughs> nice. I, I, I just love. I just love how I, I've been able to somehow blissfully do this in a kind of pure way, where it's 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 been like it does the music feel right? Yes, it does. And then whether you, your mental health or how you're feeling, kind of outside of that, that's like, well, that feels right, so it must be right. So let's do it. Because me and Johnny did live next to each other, so we just bump into each other now and again. So we, we, we know we're cool, right? And because I talk to Carl, then Johnny knows that me and Carl are cool. But then Andy had kind of, he, he disappeared a little bit from me. And, and, and I, th I think me and Carl as well, we're like, we didn't want to dig into, oh, you know, how'd you feel at the time? And it's kind of an awkward conversation a bit. So we were like, oh, you know, I just got kind of talk about now. So there, there was, you know, it's, it's deeper between the two of them than it is with me, Carl and Johnny. I think they have, they have a longer way to go to kind of come together, but it's cool. I mean, you know, they've, they've, they've spoken and stuff. So it's, yeah, it, it's nice. Like, you know, my coming back seems to have kind of facilitated a little, Kind of moving together, everybody, which is nice. Yeah, really nice. Mm. So, so how, how's the new new material been going? Well, obviously the the pause button was pushed in March, but I, I actually because yeah. um, of course with Johnny, it's like I'm pretty sure I've got demos of eight songs, three of which are like properly properly recorded. I just finished mixing one of them. Actually, it's a new <laughs> new thing because I've been kind of mixing my own stuff and. You, mixing Lucy Rose demos and stuff and nothing, you know, proper. There's like a Bear Man remix of the Lucy Rose, you know. And then Johnny was like, well, you just mix it. you got the stuff, right? you got the ears. So I thought, well, I'll try it. And then he really liked it. And then my computer crashed today. So <laughs> that's the version there, you know, if you want to. But so, yeah, yeah, we're just working on new stuff. There's cool cool songs and it's yeah he's like he, he's excited about but i but i knew you you know when, when the when the dave album came out i, I really dug it it's a good album because the thing is like you know it's like it's indie stuff it, it was it was it's 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 meant to be like a personal bedroom kind of you know it's not it's not kind of groundbreaking sonically and it's not change the world or it's not amazing art or you know I, I don't know it's it's yeah it's just a good good time you know it, it, it was never meant to be for mass consumption really you know that just kind of randomly happened it was you know I mean like when but yeah when take me out hit the chart it was like you know it, it was it was discovering you know, you know, stupid Europeans realizing they there was another half a planet out there essentially with, with millions of people on it. They had no idea existed. So it's like, yeah, we can get in the charts now. <laughs> and it was yeah, <laughs> it was just never anything anybody thought about. Because that was like Yeah, it just recently happened with Nirvana and all of that. So it was like Oh, that's not going to happen again. It was, it, we were just excited about having like the Strokes album, White Stripes, and like really awesome guitar music again. 
so that was that was it for us and then we were like well you know like we're, we're the brits so what are we gonna do well okay well we have to do like elvis costello and the police and the clash and you know like you you, you kind of dig and of course you know for me i mean if you want the key to raise like guitar playing there's probably a lot of like swedish indie stuff like Brother Daniel, Håkan Hellström, Bad Cash Quartet, Soundtrack Our Lives. Actually, seeing Soundtrack inspired me to kind of get looking in ads. And of course, the Hives. I mean, me and Carl are just massive Hives fans. Great band. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they have, they're like proper working class boys like we are as well. You know, it's basically, you, you goddamn work it. It's a job. It's not a bloody, it's not a holiday. So like you rehearse and it's, yeah, it's like you, you treat it with respect. You treat yeah. the bloody fans with respect. You, you, you know, you, you don't just like fart out a tune and it's like, oh, that'll do. Like, no, 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 no. This is like, you know, it's a chase for perfection kind of thing. <clears throat> they, share, they share that dedication with you, don't they? But, um, I'm just going to mm. also ask uh, Bjorn, we obviously had um, Burn, Camden Burn earlier on in the year, and I, obviously the pandemic's put a pause on lots of plans, but have oh, you got any yeah, yeah. idea of when we might get some, some more material out? Well, the funny thing is, like, Burn, Camden Burn, I'm, I'm not on. Oh, right. That is, <laughs> yeah, funny enough, it came back about because um, uh, somebody asked Johnny for uh, a soundtrack thing, and it's, oh, I can't remember what telly channel it is. on oh, BBC, ITV, Channel 4. Have I mentioned all of them? Is it going to be a corporate <laughs> problem? Um, and it's basically about like, I think it's, it's like a couple living in Camden. And it might be set at the time as well. Just I, I've forgotten the name of it. I'm sure if you Google it, you can, you can find out. But they basically wanted like a new tune. Um, so yeah, so funnily enough, that is uh, rather different from what we're working on. This is very early days, and it's just who's recording and whether the song survive or not. But it's it's sounding kind of second album, but we're quite keen to get back to, like there was a great kind of punkiness to proceedings around like the first six months or something. Okay, Bjorn, really appreciate all the time you've given us tonight. But we're going to move on to the encore now. So last three questions of the podcast. Uh, first up. You've played some huge festivals, some huge uh, support shows and, and uh, massive bills with other artists. So who's the biggest idol that you've ever played with? Ooh. If we think about heroes, I mean, it must have been Brian May and Queen, I suppose, but it's just hard without Freddie, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, he, but I remember he, he was... Def, he must have been my first guitar hero. And it's, it's great because... You, you know, you start getting a hunch of the last lesson you learn as a musician and also the hardest lesson, 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 <laughs> which is when not to play. And that is the tricky thing. And like, you know, the hives have got this. Brian May, because it's like, yeah, it's just so tasteful. There's like a little thing here and, there, and then the three perfect notes. So the second question in the encore, Bjorn, is what's the best gig you've played uh, with Razorlight? Oh, it's got to be that headlining Leeds gig. The thing that happens with more people is that, yeah, actually, funny enough, in, in, in Sweden and here, you say like a sea of people. And the larger the sea, the longer and 
slower, but also potentially higher the waves are. I just really, that's a good, because like in a small venue, you know, the energy you put out, if the crowd respond to it, it comes back straight away. And you can kind of, you know, which is where you get this kind of like fizzly, fizzle, kind of sparky energy from like a small up to maybe like 1,500, 2,000 gig thereabouts. Whereas with the bigger ones, and it's, you know, maybe it's just the speed of sound or something. It takes longer for it to hit. But when a big wave comes back at you, it's this, you know, it's the whole thing kind of crazy soars. And, and again, I always had a distinct feeling like, if, there, if this really clicks in my head, if I properly comprehend, understand what I'm doing here, I'm just going to run and hide. I don't think like I'm playing guitar to 15,000 people. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's that kind of thing. But like, thankfully, you know, like I, uh, I need glasses for contrast kind of from afar. So like on big stages, you can't see the back. It was, it, it was yeah. I mean, I remember doing America and Earl's court. And at the time it was like the lighters had just gone and everybody was doing phones, but I don't think people were filming. I haven't found any YouTube of it, but it was basically like the venue turned into this amazing kind of star field. It was almost like, you know, kind of planetarium kind of vibe. You see all these kind of stars light up all of the room apart from the ceiling. And then it dawns on you that, that, that it's all like cameras. Yeah, that's a lot of people. And it was, it was completely crazy doing it at, the O2 actually. Can I like, add that one as an auxiliary as well? Like, the, the O2 support with Kaiser Chiefs. Thank you for having us, guys. Much <laughs> appreciated. Um, yeah, O2. And like literally three months before that, like in October, I started taking gigs with uh, Matt Snowballs, who is now defunct actually. Although, although they carry on uh, building cases, MSM cases, excellent fly cases. Um, mm. And basically, yeah, I, I was just working as a roadie. So I'd driven there to pick up the gear, rent the gear that we'd rented to them. And it was like the support man for Little Mix or something. And I drove up in the van and I thought like, oh, this is fun. I bloody well played this 12 years ago. <laughs> and here I am driving in the van, but you know, and I'm still happy. And I'm still doing music <laughs> and bloody great. So I picked up the stuff and then, did a few more gigs with them and then Johnny called <laughs> and then we were back there playing it. But yeah, it was just like five people on stage with improvised bits. And that was always the thing. I, I guess, I guess that it, that is one big theme with everything apart from recording and construction, constructing the musical arrangements. But, you know, like, apart from the record, it was all very much kind of seat of the pants. And it's almost like we kind of, <laughs> and it got stuck in that mode. But because <clears throat> like we'd always have like little bits where we didn't know what we were doing. So like, kind of in the city and profile are two kind of classic, but, but, it, but it can happen at any point. If Johnny decided he needed to kind of like put the music in a hold and pattern to do stuff. Well, that, that's what happened. So quite a lot of the time, and, and 
the interaction with the crowd, and you can you can kind of tell that they know that you don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> and then because you know we're just kind of jamming, and then Andy will, you know, would start hitting like a little thing. I'd go with that on guitar. Maybe Carl goes with it, and Johnny has got like, you know, he's, he's always got like kind of lyrics and melodies and stuff. So he'll throw that in, and then you know just kind of go free on it, and then somebody will start playing like the little you know, two notes from like the Dalston melody, which we're kind of currently jamming out in the middle. And then we'll go, you know, and, we, and I remember we had these cues where like Johnny would kind of reach behind his back and do like hand signs. And then we noticed like, okay, okay. Cause he, you know, he would go into like, what, what? and kind of building up the vocal, but is he going to like pow into, you know, all of us, we're just going to drop it down. You know, we just don't know. We're just watching him like hawks and so the crowd. And it's just amazing. And sometimes it just completely falls apart. And, you know, Andy just has to go one, two, three, four. And then, <laughs> and it's all right. It's all right. Or something. But it is just special, you know. And, and we did it. I, I mean, it's like when I look back on it, it's like, it's like the guts, just the God damn, I don't want to use like cojones because it's a male specific word and there are plenty of women out there with plenty of it. But it's like, I mean, we told Chris Thomas, you know, this legendary guy, you know, like he recorded, never mind the bollocks for Christ's sake, you know, the pretenders, pulp, all this stuff. We're just like, ah, it's too much reverb. No, no, it's, it's too, no, it's not like, you know, a bit punchier. <laughs> I think he threw a tantrum and ran out the room. <laughs> we just like, no, this is our bloody record. Screw you. And yeah, it was, it was a real, yeah, young, dumb and full of cum. <laughs> okay, Bjorn, last, last question for you then. Um, which, yeah. is the, which is the Razorlight song that you're proudest of? Proudest? I mean, like, my personal favourite is Tonight in L.A., Mm-hmm. But I think that's just the one that kind of gets me the most kind of emotionally for some reason. I don't know, like specific song. This song is like that are kind of personally to me that I, I kind of hold a bit above. But but that's a purely personally emotional like you know, like up all night. Um, I mean, I remember Johnny playing me the demo. He'd he'd written up all night in Vice. They were a pair, and he he'd got like this crappy little Casio keyboard, but he could like. You know, like little crappy drum machines you get on them. So he'd he'd found two different beats on that, and he'd recorded Vice and Up All Night. I think he he hadn't even recorded. I think he may have just played them to me with a little keyboard, kind of ticking away in the background. And I was so taken by Up All Night, I didn't even notice Vice after it. Managed to come up with some good guitars for that, <laughs> which always is kind of icing because, because like the guitar parts, I don't. I'll write them. I just kind of hear them most of the time. They just kind of, oh, I'll just, I'll just play some random thing on the fretboard and then, oh, that note can go there. And then it'll, you know, it feels like I'm just kind of channeling my, my subconscious. So that's why it feels nice. You can kind of listen back to it and it's not, you don't remember that. Oh yeah. I was sitting with a pen and a pad and a paper and I did that. And then no, 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 you know, it's a, yeah, very kind of out of it. I suppose it's that kind of new romantics thing of like, you know, trying to get out of it and trying to channel some some kind of thing. Um, but I just kind of can get naturally out of it without like getting drunk and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
if there was one thing that I was just really proud of, it's, it's the second album as a whole, I think. Because we kind of set out to make like the third Elvis Costello album or kind of one of the, you know, just like a really solid album where it wasn't, you know, like, oh, there are like two amazing songs which are the biggest hits in the world and everybody will remember them for always and they'll, they'll be like redefined. And the rest of the album is like trying to do those two songs. breathes nicely it's got this kind of early 80s sound it's got good great energy great it was basically like you know you 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 keep the youthful spunk from the first one but we just know how to like harness it a bit more now and it it, it felt so right to call it razor la razor la as well it wasn't for like dearth of ideas it just felt like the right thing because mm. yeah on the yeah on the first one like we, we didn't we didn't know the recording process or that stuff you know it's also new to you so i felt that yeah it felt like we, we, we were kind of in command of the whole process and that's the kind of yeah that was is and forever will be the lodestar you don't decide what it is it's like it's the people who listen to it who decide what it is. So in the end, it, it doesn't really matter what we were kind of trying to do in a way. You know, it's that weird thing like with being a sellout, you know, because we were essentially the Pearl Jam of, of the wave. And, you know, it's that weird thing. Like, you, you don't sell out. Like, pe- people decide to buy your album. Like, you, you make an album that too many people like. And then you get called a sellout. I mean, that certainly was for us. Like we, we made an album that we thought was bloody awesome and that we wanted to buy. Um, and then it turns out a lot of other people thought the same. And that's like the holy smokes. Because, you, you know, you just get four people in a room. Like you have no idea what's going to happen to the music after it. You know, and it's, and it's terrifying. You're like, well, they might hate this. Like we like it, but... I mean, there's just four of us and like the, the kind of confidence in it's like, oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah, we like that. But yeah, in the end, you just don't know because it's not up to you yeah. and it's not up to you what it means to people. And you, you know, this is like the misheard lyrics thing and stuff. So that's the wonderful thing. You know, it, it's like, it's, it's like putting, putting a ship out to sea or something. You know, you've built the damn thing and you've made damn sure it's the best steel and the best engine and, you painted it nicely, but then you just have to, you just launch the bloody thing. And then, you know, it's not up to you <laughs> how far it goes or, you know, if it's going to get scrapped before time or whatever, that's, you know, but uh, yeah, it seems like, yeah, yeah I, I think it's held up. Yeah. And I think you can definitely energy say that. Spark of the first one. But again, you know, it, it was never meant to be groundbreaking. It was it was meant to be like a, a companion for like for growing up. Bjorn, thanks so much for taking us through that story. Yeah, hopefully mm. it won't be too much longer before we can see you back on the road and uh, see you playing live again. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, uh, Isla White were nice to uh, commute our booking to next year, mm-hmm. uh, as did. I mean, it, it seems like whenever the next festival summer we're going to get 
you know, hopefully next year, touch wood. Um, a is going to be lit, man. <laughs> so he's kind of done, like, come on, field, mud. But then you stop thinking about the tent. <laughs> <laughs>